What's up, family? You're tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, Homer Venters, a physician and epidemiologist, a nationally recognized leader in health and human rights in regard to people locked inside. The way mass incarceration is designed disproportionately involves people who are black, uh, people who are brown skinned. Those are people that are also being left out of or pushed aside in the vaccination efforts in, in communities. And so we really are set up to kind of turn the corner in a very bad direction via mass incarceration uh, with this outbreak. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Today, we're going to spend our time together looking at monkeypox or MPV and its impact on some of our most marginalized populations. We're going to start with MPV inside of America's 7,000 jails and prisons. We are joined this morning by Homer Venters, a physician and epidemiologist, a nationally recognized leader in health and human rights in regard to people locked inside. He's the former chief medical officer of New York City jails and the author of Life and Death in Rikers Island. Good morning, Homer. Uh, good morning, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, Homer, talk about you know, the conditions inside of our jails and prisons and, and why that makes uh, the demographic in there particularly vulnerable to the spread of MPV. Yeah, I think that right now we're at the very beginning phases of this, this outbreak of monkeypox being reshaped and uh, unfortunately being reshaped by mass incarceration. And I say that because of the incredibly filthy and crowded, overcrowded conditions, especially in county jails and courthouse uh, intake pens or holding pens where people move in and out. They have forced skin to skin contact for prolonged periods of time. Uh, and the lack of surveillance uh, as people go in and out of these places uh, as to whether or not they have uh, lesions on their skin, are feeling sick, and then add in that because this is disproportionately, uh, you know, the way mass incarceration is designed, disproportionately involves people who are black, uh, people who are brown skinned. Those are people that are also being left out of or pushed aside in the vaccination efforts in, in communities. And so we really are set up to kind of turn the corner in a very bad direction via mass incarceration uh, with this outbreak. Homer Venter, I feel like I was just here having this exact conversation about the spread of the coronavirus uh, inside of our jails and prisons. What lessons should we have learned that we're missing? Specifically, one of the things I'm thinking about is uh, staff, right? Guards that move in and out of these facilities um, being responsible for coronavirus spread. Potential for that being the case with MPV? Yes, I think you're right. I, I, you know, I've probably spent most of the last two or three years doing coronavirus inspection. So I've been in about 50 places or 60 places looking with an eye towards uh, COVID. And I think that while it's true that this virus, MPV or monkeypox, is not going to run through an entire facility the way, likely, the way that uh, we saw with COVID-19, the same problems with overcrowding, uh, with staff who come in and out without any kind of health screening and move to every corner of the facility, those will set us up to have 
lots of cases that we could both prevent and also miss cases so that people don't get treatment and could get much sicker than than need be. I think that a couple of quick lessons that we have that I see county jails not really paying attention to. One is to really be careful with staff and uh, people coming into the justice system to look for and ask about exposure to monkeypox uh, cases or suspected cases. The other is that, you know, early in COVID-19, we did see some county jails reduce the number of people coming in, um, take local or state uh, action so that not so people with low level arrests, uh, things that clearly were not public safety threats, would not be going into these jails and pack, being packed together. That effort I certainly have not seen currently in response to um, this outbreak, but it's a very important one. Yeah, that was actually going to be something I asked you a little bit later, but we can go there now. I mean, coronavirus opportunity feels like the wrong word, but for lack of a different one right now, right, it, it did prevent uh, an opportunity to uplift the conversation around decarceration. And um, while monkeypox isn't deadly, um, it, it, it is incredibly uncomfortable and painful and uh, a horrific experience. And I'm wondering, we have, you have, so we haven't seen it, but are there opportunities to talk about decarceration now with MPV? not just stopping people from going in, but getting people out. Yeah, I think that there are a couple of ways to approach this. And we all have spent, you know, two, two and a half years kind of thinking in these in this frame. One is obviously the way in and the incredibly crowded and packed uh, courthouses and intake pens of county jails. And you'll see, you know, I saw that uh, two Fulton County um, staff, uh, I'm not sure where, but uh, in, in Georgia, are, are being evaluated for potential monkeypox. I think if you have, once you have cases in these areas, then courts may not, you know, judges may not want to go, or they may be very reluctant. The kind of cleaning you have to do that may provide some support for fewer people going in. I think that once people are inside, the thing that we never did very well with COVID is to find who are the people that are at highest risk of dying or getting very ill. Um, and it, I've struggled with this because inside the facility administrators the head doctors the jailers they know who these people are they know who's immunocompromised they know who has serious eczema those people we did with some limited uh success like in the ice uh, detention system where you know it's i think there's a public safety frame that says nobody that doesn't you know needs to be detained but we were able to push for release or extra reviews uh, of people who are high risk and so facilities should be thinking about who are the high risk people that we need to make sure get vaccinated if there are cases in the facility or cases in the county um, but uh, you know unfortunately i think that most of the covid efforts in this direction just kind of ended and i just see increasing numbers of people uh, all over the country coming back through the front door of the county jail so it's very difficult another conversation that surfaced tomer venter uh, as we were looking at the spread of coronavirus inside of jails and prisons was the reluctance of folks who are locked up on the inside to report that they have systems or get help and i want to walk through a couple of those reasons um one being copay that inside of some of these facilities, folks are actually charged to receive medical services and not so great medical services at that. Yeah, I think that copays just simply need to be eliminated. Uh, you know, any box you have where you've detained people against their will, whether it's a jail, a prison, juvenile detention setting, those places should not have copays. And what we saw early in COVID is some pretty much every place would say, well, we'll waive the copay uh, if it's related to. COVID 
you know, symptoms. But then as we all experienced, the symptoms that were linked to COVID-19 change week by week, sometimes day by day. Um, and so the places that I inspected or worked with staff to kind of like have a more effective response are places that just said we're getting rid of the copay completely because neither the jailers nor the, the, the medical staff are very good at thinking about, okay, is this symptom linked to this disease or not? And it all serves as a barrier. It's all there as a barrier and it doesn't generate income. It's not a net income generator for any of these places usually. So uh, eliminating the copay is an important thing to do, period, for the general health uh, of people in detention. But certainly when there's an outbreak, it's it's an absolute uh, necessity. Not a net income generator, then what is the reluctance or resistance uh, to, to get rid of it? Yeah, I think that if you look at the amount of time, administrative time that goes into adjudicating grievances over um, people who, you know, think that they've met the criteria for a waiving of copay and it didn't get waived, it's just, as everybody knows, who's kind of lived and experienced or worked in these settings is completely arbitrary. There's a lot of arbitrariness. And so I think that one of the deep, deep disconnects between patients behind bars and the health staff is that the health staff often feel like sick calls when people affirmatively report on their own a health problem that they think that that's not valuable or they think that in there is a lot of work that's not legitimate medical work and so when i look at deaths that i would classify as jail or prison attributable deaths those are deaths that really happen because of something conditions behind bars often it's that people are trying to report symptoms or problems that are ignored and they're in the middle of that is a deep belief that sick call uh, is not sometimes legitimate. And copay is an important part of saying, let's keep a lot of people away. Let's not have them come to us all the time or so often with what we think of as not legitimate health problems. And then another reason, uh, Homer, that folks don't report symptoms is because one of the default responses from jailers is then to shove people inside of solitary confinement, isolate them. Yeah, 100%. This is where anytime we try and address a health problem with a law enforcement or, or criminal justice <laughs> response, we fail. And uh, it's harder and it's more costly. And so behind bars, you know, this was the default was to put people into isolation wings. Um, you know, by August of 2020, the CDC had come out with some kind of very muted language about the response for medical isolation to COVID shouldn't be punitive. Well, it was 100% punitive and punitive in ways that, you know, I think the doctors and nurses and certainly the CDC didn't think about because they didn't talk to incarcerated people. So the loss of contact with your family, the loss of phone privileges, the, the disconnect from your property, from your personal effects, um, all of those things were pretty routine for people who were going into COVID medical isolation. And it was only, you know, I, there were a few places I inspected where they tried to work for a less punitive approach. So, for instance, if there's a unit that used to be a SAG unit that has cells, um, if it's full of people with COVID, you don't need to lock those doors. But almost every place would. So you're locked in for the whole day, um, allowing people to have their property with them, giving them phone access, things like that. That Those were important kind of humane uh, efforts that most places did not make. And then e even if someone goes through the process of asking for and receiving medical help inside of a prison or jail, what is the quality of care that someone incarcerated can expect to receive? I mean, we already, we've got a vaccine shortage uh, and, a, and a T-Pucks 
uh, I don't know if we call it a shortage or a log jam on the outside, how does that play out inside? Yeah, I think that, you know, first I would say it's variable. I think that there are some correctional health services or carceral health services that make an effort to provide what I would think of as a community standard of care. But I think overall, this we've built this system, this big network of healthcare systems in our country to be substandard because the CDC and our state departments of health have, they're completely AWOL when it comes to looking at the quality of this care. So the quality of the care we get is the quality that a jailer, like a sheriff or a department of corrections says is okay. And so that's pretty low. When it comes to the current outbreak, my, one of my concerns is that the medical isolation period is actually longer than COVID, right? It could go for weeks and people are in a lot of pain. And there's one, you know, pain and pain control and treatment of pain is one of the most grossly inadequate areas of correctional health. Um, because, you know, the dehumanization that happens between the health services and the patients they're supposed to care for often involves just ignoring people's reports of pain. And so for people who go into medical isolation for MPV or monkeypox, I'm concerned that not only could they, you know, not get timely uh, vaccination, which, you know, within a few days of their exposure or their initial symptoms, but also they may not get adequate uh, pain control or pain treatment for pain. I'm probably going to show my medical ignorance with this next question, but I am curious. Uh, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. I know people on the outside and people going inside are sort of pretending that we're not, but we are. Uh, so question, what happens when coronavirus meets monkeypox or MPV inside of these facilities? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen it firsthand yet. Um, I think that I'm worried about, most worried about county jails. Um, you know, we're still having several hundred deaths a day in the country from uh, COVID. I think that my biggest fear relates to a almost complete failure during COVID, which is to get facilities and systems to know who are the most high-risk people in their facilities. So, you know, if you have a thousand people in a jail or a prison, probably a few hundred of them are on the chronic care service. Uh, but then of those, there are probably a smaller number, you know, out of a thousand, you might have a hundred or 200 that have multiple risk factors that put you at risk really for dying if you get infection. And that uh, ability to kind of risk stratify, to think about who are the people we're most worried about is crucial, was crucial for COVID, was a failure in COVID pretty consistently. And now with um, monkeypox, you know, if you think about who's eligible for vaccination today, we worry a lot about people who have immune compromise, who have, uh, you know, serious inflammatory skin conditions, um, women who are pregnant, things like that. And those, all of that information exists. But we, I just saw over and over dozens of times with COVID that facilities don't actually use that information that they have to stratify who most needs our protection. And the reason that's so crucial is because uh, carceral spaces, uh, jails, prisons, juvenile detention, have never been as understaffed as they are today. So mm -hmm. before COVID, it would be shocking if you heard a facility was like 30 or 40% uh, open lines. Now you hear about places with more than half of their staff lines unfilled. And that then creates an even greater imperative to stratify who do we care about the most from dying. And so that also supports the need for, for emptying out these places, for decarceration. But um, 
you know, I think that it's it's an uphill climb. It's a, it's it's not a, a period where I don't think any many of us feel optimistic about conditions behind bars. It it feels like things are getting worse, and they're going to keep getting worse for for years to come. Unfortunately, you spent nine years uh, at Rikers Island uh, as a healthcare professional, and while you were there, you created something you mentioned a little earlier in our interview, uh, a a statistical category called jail attributable deaths. I'd like you to define that. You said a little bit about it inside of the context of MPV, but if you could expand. Sure, I think when somebody dies uh, behind bars or just after leaving uh, incarceration or detention, we should ask uh, two quick questions. One is, did they receive the standard of care? Did they receive you know, the care that we would expect them to receive? And the second is, is their death related significantly to anything that happened behind bars? Uh, and when I say anything that happened behind bars, that could relate to their medical care, but it could relate to the security or the environment. It could increasingly, for instance, heat. We talk about that a lot. Um, that then if those two questions are answered correctly, we can determine is it a jail or prison attributable death? And this for me is kind of at the core of what I think is most important, at least for me to do, which is to start correctly assigning and measuring the health risks of incarceration. I think that we have a part of our country that knows incarceration that says, yeah, of course, it's very dangerous. So. Let's just agree to that. We have another part of our country that thinks that incarceration is a, something else, that the rules get followed. And you know, the CDC and our State Departments of Health are completely absent from this task of measuring the true health risks of these places, the health risks that these places confer to people, to humans that go into them. Um, and if you look at like how much we've done to measure the health risks of people who were around you know, the, the site in 9-11, or people who have exposure to smoking or other things, mm. or, or buses or fumes, you know, we just, we have, like you said, 7,000 of these places and we don't measure how they confer health risk to people. And death is the place where it's not only the most serious health outcome, but it's a complete failure in how a person with diabetes who doesn't get their insulin or who's in a cell who's too hot, and dies behind bars, they're going to go to, uh, they may be in a, 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 an autopsy by a coroner or a medical examiner who simply says this was a death of natural causes. And then there's no correct assignment of the health risk of the place to this person. And that's, that's system wide. I'm a venture. I, outside of doing the, the, this show, I, I work in the field of addressing state sponsored violence. And Something that strikes me often is that public ire can be raised when we are talking about the state law enforcement killing people outside of prison walls uh, and jail walls. But when we are talking about folks inside of jails and prisons, people like Dewan Armstrong at Santa Rita Jail, um, it is, it, I have found as an organizer, it incredibly difficult to get people to pay attention, to get angry, to demand accountability. Our county jail out here has, has killed over 40 people in 14 years. Right to me, that the thousands of people should be surrounding it, trying to shut it down. Um, but but have found it very difficult to to get people's sh- hackles up from where you sit, your perch. Why do you think that is? Well, I you know, as I when I investigate deaths behind bars, I think what is really overwhelming sometimes is how kind of multi layered. Uh, or, compl- or nuanced the, 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 the wall is, the lack of transparency. So on the security side, these are paramilitary places, right? So they don't wanna have outside eyes pr- 
prying in. And the governments, local state governments, international leadership at the CDC and HHS have said, okay, that's fine. Like we won't have health uh, authorities, health experts pushing in to see why did somebody die or was it, you know, was there a problem? Um, that's one layer, but there's another layer, which is that, you know, many of the health services in these places are for-profit vendors. So if you actually look like when you get into one of these cases an individual case that you could dive into the depositions and the, you know, there's never a trial, but like the settlement, all of that, what you find is that a lot of the important information is purposefully divided between the security service and then the health vendor that's a private company. And so you'll routinely have jailers, sheriffs saying, I don't know anything about healthcare. I don't know if a guy doesn't get his medicine. I don't know. It's not my job. They then have a, a, a contract with a for-profit vendor that then has different legal protections and different efforts to kind of keep their information hidden from outside eyes. And what it does is this bifurcation creates a very complex and difficult path to get to the truth of what actually happened. Um, and when you don't have the most sophisticated health, public health groups like the CDC and State Department's Health that do look at these kind of things in nursing homes or in schools or wherever, when they're not involved, it, it then it's just through litigation and, and it makes it very hard to know what's happening. And I think the part that also is true is that in the public domain, there's a, there's a, mythology and a, uh, that that it doesn't matter or that these things just reflect sick people getting what's coming to them. And that, mm. you know, is a horrible feature of our culture. But I think that the, the acceptance of our State Department's health and the CDC to not wade into those waters is really one of the most profound examples of racism and health that we have today. Homer Venters, we are going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you so much, not only for your, your work, but for coming on the show today. Hopefully we'll have you back soon as we continue to track uh, this in our jails and prisons. Thank you. It's a thrill to connect with you, Kat. Thank you so much. Homer Venters is a physician, an epidemiologist, and a nationally recognized leader in health and human rights. He is the former chief medical officer of New York City jails and also the author of Life and Death in Rikers Island. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world for all of us to thrive in. That's it for this episode, fam. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programming is funded exclusively by listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Remember, we all we got.